Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffBeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Monday, so this is an archive show. First published as a newspaper column sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on November 13th of 2016 under the headline, Atlantic City of the West Was Swallowed Up by the Sea. Here we go. Just off Highway 131, near the town of Tillamook, there's a scenic overlook from which you can gaze out over a long, barren peninsula, slender and low-lying and sandy, dotted with beach grass and scotch broom. The name of the peninsula is Bay Ocean Spit. It's named after a posh resort town that once crowned it, a town that, over a 35-year period, dropped house by house into the ocean. Today, nothing remains but beach sand, memories, and whatever's left of an old Bell System telephone cable, which as of 1989 was still in place and ready for use. Bay Ocean had its start in 1906, when a real estate mogul named Thomas Benton Potter learned of the spit from his son, who had just returned from Tillamook. The younger Potter told of a great waterfront headland, shaped like a club, its head towering 140 feet high and half a mile wide between the bay and the ocean covered with pine trees and salal bushes and Oregon grape, and it was available for development. The elder Potter soon visited the site, and the possibilities enchanted him. It looked to him as if, with the proper promotion and investment, it could become the Atlantic City of the West Coast. There was plenty of room for it to grow, a full 600 acres, and the lovely, broad, flat beach seemed to go on forever, from the mouth of Tillamook Bay down south to Cape Mears, nearly five miles. It was the perfect opportunity to steal a march on the competing developers who were at that very moment, Potter happened to know, drawing up plans for a resort at Seaside, and so he purchased the land and got to work. The plan was for a world-class resort community. Potter envisioned a majestic hotel. The concept drawings look very similar to the old Portland Hotel, which once stood where Pioneer Courthouse Square is today. A massive natatorium on the beach, full of heated seawater and equipped with a wave generator so that guests could choose between warm and cold surf, a movie theater, a dance hall, and many other resort amenities. The town would have telephone service and indoor plumbing utilities and electric lights and cement roads. Potter built most of those things immediately and then got busy selling lots in the new and growing town. Getting people to the town was a challenge, which he met by having a 150-foot motor yacht built the largest yacht on the West Coast, suitable for accommodating a hundred guests at a time and leading excursions out to Bay Ocean via the open sea. This was phenomenally expensive, of course, and the trip took three days. Potter always took his guests on a sort of scenic route to Bay Ocean, going far out to sea, ostensibly so that he could show his guests the Columbia River lightship and Tillamook Rock light, but his real motive was to prevent anyone from catching a glimpse of the hated rivals at Seaside. Upon arrival, the Marks would be wined and dined and sales-pitched in the classic time-honored fashion before being ferried back again to Portland. Potter was a top-shelf salesman, and the town site really was striking. Many of his guests bought in on the spot. 
When the railroad line came in close by, those excursions became far more economical for Potter and faster to boot. Sales continued very briskly. Following the grand opening in 1912, the town grew quickly for a couple of years. But by then, Potter's health had started to fail, and he handed things over to his son, who had other interests and didn't fancy a life of promoting Bay Ocean like his father had. By 1915, neither Potter was really involved anymore. The Potters left Bay Ocean essentially half-built. Its growth had been mostly financed by lot sales, and lot sales hadn't yielded enough cash to fully realize their dreams. The Grand Hotel was yet unbuilt. They'd built an annex hotel, which they hoped would one day be used as housing for resort workers, but it now it looked as if that would be it. The roads were very nice, but there was no connection to the outside world, so the only cars on the streets were brought in by ship. The telephone exchange worked great for local calls, but lacked a connection to the outside world. And the water supply lacked a booster pump adequate to send water service up the side of that 140-foot-tall bluff on which all the nicest homes were built. But that bluff wouldn't be 140 feet tall for much longer. Not after 1917, it wouldn't. That was the year that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers built the North Jetty, extending out from the north side of the entrance to Tillamook Bay. The Corps had wanted to build two jetties, the configuration that's there today, by the way, but the residents of Tillamook and Bay City and Garibaldi and Bay Ocean would have had to pay a quarter of the cost of such a jetty, and none of them wanted to do that, especially now that the railroad was giving them alternatives to the open sea for shipping out produce. So, over the Corps' warnings that a single jetty would be at best a temporary solution, it was agreed to put one in. The results were obvious almost immediately. That broad, sandy beach at Bay Ocean started getting less broad. During winters, the storm-driven waves started getting higher and higher. Then in 1932, a particularly vicious storm drove waves ashore that washed the footings out from under the gorgeous seaside natatorium with the heated saltwater swimming pool and wave generator. The waves, surging over what used to be the beach, started to undermine the 140-foot bluff. Great Flakes of hillsides started falling into the sea, carrying with them trees and bushes and eventually houses. The hotel annex started falling into the sea room by room until it was gone. By 1938, 59 homes were also gone. The winter storms started driving waves all the way over the thin part of the peninsula, filling the bay with salt water, much to the dismay of the oyster farmers who since 1928 had been growing oysters there. It all culminated in a disastrous winter in 1952, when a big storm actually washed out a mile-wide gap in the waste of the spit, turning Bay Ocean into an island and drenching the bay with beach sand. The oyster farms were buried beneath it, a multi-million dollar local industry wiped out in an instant. The other estuary fisheries started to collapse too, as the salinity of the bay surged to levels the local fish couldn't tolerate. The federal government now sprang into action, building a riprap seawall across the gap to stop the further damage. By this time, there were just a handful of residents left on Bay Ocean. The last to leave were Francis and Ida Mitchell, who kept the little store there, and were, throughout their time on Bay Ocean, the town's biggest boosters. Francis died in 1965 at the age of 95. Ida died some years before that after having had a stroke. By 1970, Bay Ocean Spit was a thin line of riprap trailed by a low bar of sand. By then, not even Francis Mitchell would have been able to hang on there. The formerly big, solid, 140-foot-high head now more resembled the ghost of a sand dune rising feebly from the sea. The only thing maintaining most of the spit was the line of riprap across the seaward edge. But by 1970, crews were working on putting another jetty in. 
the South Jetty. Today, nearly 50 years after the South Jetty was completed, visitors to Bay Ocean Spit can look out on a much more substantial place. Today, one can almost visualize the large and bustling town that was platted there a century ago, a town that could, if its founders' dreams had been fully realized, have been home to some 3,000 people. The foliage is coming back, although the dominant species is the invasive and suppressive scotch broom, but at least the spit is green once again. As for the town, well, technically it still exists. Several dozen people still own lots there. Some of those lots are still underwater. None of the lots can be built on, and because of the waste disposal issues, it's even illegal for residents to park a motorhome on them. But that's all that's left. All physical traces of the town of Bay Ocean are long gone. Key sources in this story have included works by Bert and Margie Weber, Ulrich H. Hart, and TheOrganEncyclopedia.org. That's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 500 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Other Offbeat Oregon goodies include an active Facebook page, a Twitter feed, a ton of historic photos, and a bunch more stuff. Plus a book including visuals for today's show and full citations to sources. All these things are accessible via our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Facara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.